this last six months, there's been more UX research tools that have been created than in the preceding you know, history of mankind. When you talk to people in about their lives and the context of their usage, you generate more surprises. They were streaming the video from the car live to the designers in Santa Monica and the engineers in Germany. Thanks everyone for coming to Zerp Soapbox. Stoked to have Nate Bolt here. Nate Bolt who's conducted over 230 user research studies <laughs> for companies such as Electronic Arts, for Oracle, for Silly, who is the mastermind behind Ethnio, nifty little app that has recruited hundreds and thousands of thousands. Hundreds, millions. Millions <laughs> of, uh, of folks to uh, participants in the user research studies around the world remotely in the seven years that it's been out. And of course, Nate Wolf, who's published on a list of hard and UX Mag, who's written an awesome book, Remote User Research, uh, from Rosenfeld Media, which all of you should get. So with that, <laughs> let's welcome Nate Bolt, the one, the only, number one on Google for robotic tree dispenser. <laughs> Nate Bolt. <laughs> Thank you, Dimitri. That was an awesome intro. Um, <laughs> so um, since we have a pretty small group today, I thought we can kind of custom tailor this. I'm not just going to like go through the spiel. We can, um, I think, you know, find out sort of what you guys are interested in about remote research, and we can kind of focus on those. My guess is that it's going to be about the tools. Um, so I've got a bunch of stuff in here that we usually get into the different categories of, like, UX apps. And since you guys have your own UX research apps, I thought that would be the most fun to kind of, like, dive into. Um, but, I mean, it's just worth a sort of, like, reminder that we're in this incredibly small niche. I mean, research in general is sort of a niche industry, User research within that is pretty small, and then UX research within that is even smaller, and remote UX research or online is even smaller. So it's just a tiny, this is our scientific guess at how much overall user research is conducted remotely. But clear, I mean, certainly less than 5%, especially when you think about the world of ad agencies, you know, conducting focus groups, and that, that, that dwarfs our world as designers and developers, right? Um, they're just more of that industry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how much, my question for you guys is, how much moderated remote stuff do you guys do, if any? So, I mean, how many people have done any moderated, like, screen sharing type of remote testing here? If none, zero. Fantastic. Okay. We'll definitely focus on the tools. So, um, you know, this is kind of the way we split it up in terms of, like, the world of researching people. Um, most of our work tends to be on the behavioral side. We do some opinion-based research, but we're most interested in people's functional interactions with interfaces, whether it's a software or hardware or whatever. Um, so, you know, a lot of people want to know, like, what scenarios are good for doing moderated remote research, but I think the same applies to when to do, like, online UX research, too. So let's say we've got our fictional character here. This guy's name's Marv. He's a creative director, UX interaction designer, product manager, developer, IA. And this is his boss. Um, his boss is kind of a dick, but he he wants to know, um, you know, how they can basically. I don't know what the birds have to do with it, but he uh, he wants to save money on the research, right? So it's a common sort of motivating factor to get into online research. Um, and one of the first things that we tell people on the moderated side. So again, we we kind of split up remote or online research into this watching people or using a tool. For on the moderated side, 
we encourage people to think about it as a cheap way to get access to somebody's physical environment. You know, um, typical lab research where you have somebody come in, they're on your terms. You know, they're coming into your facility, they're sitting at your office. Even if it's guerrilla style and you're in a coffee shop, they're still in, a, in an artificial physical environment. The cool thing about doing some kind of remote moderated thing is you, they're in the moment, and they're in their own physical environment, they're in their own computing environment. Um, and you can get a sort of what we call time-aware research, which is just, you know, when you intercept somebody and they're, like, buying something or doing something and you say, hey, do you have 10 seconds to share your screen with me and I want to follow along with you and what you were doing and talk to you about it, that's sort of a way to get on their timeline. We call it time-aware research. Um, but you're obviously giving up physical presence. So um, it's really easy to get observers. Um, you know, you can do it with people all over the world, clearly. Uh, but there are certainly times when this, again, this is for the moderated side, when it's a bad idea. So if you did want feedback on a video game with 13-year-old kids who, you know, are actually French and Chilean but spoke English and had webcams, like, that's a really bad idea for remote testing because bandwidth is a huge issue, translation is a huge issue, it's hard to get consent for kids. Um, you know, the actual degree to which you can make behavioral inferences from webcams is kind of arguable, right? Like, it's just pretty shitty resolution. Um, you know, if there's any security, that's a problem. Oh, and that's actually a safe in our office. We did the testing on Spore, which was a game a few years ago, and they made us store the code in a safe, and the only place we could keep the safe was in our bathroom. So <laughs> that's, it now holds toilet paper. Um, so that, and this, this one where they wanted to do the webcams with kids. That was a real study, too. It was for this game called Habo, which is big for, like, 12-year-olds. This was, like, the French screener that we put up on their site. Um, and it, you know, it was as close to a complete disaster as we've ever had doing moderated remote intercepts because kids don't play video games when their parents are home. We needed parental consent in order to do the interviews. Um, kids also lied about their ability to speak English over the phone. So French kids, German kids, and Chilean kids all lied consistently. They basically said, yes, I can speak English on the phone. And then we would call them, and they didn't speak any English, at least not you know, orally, I mean, not spoken. So um, this is kind of a bunch of things that went wrong with the study, but the most interesting was that when they did misassess their English skills, if you ever are looking to recruit people online to from other countries to do English-speaking research of any kind, even if it's a tool or if it's moderated. We ask the question, what happens when you let go of a balloon? And then we have a drop-down that says up, down, left, right. Uh, depends on what's in the balloon. Depends on the planet you're standing on. But anything that kind of makes somebody prove that they speak English is a much better question than just asking somebody if they do. Um, so talking about designing uh, actual uh, study, Let's say the evil boss wants some insight on why people are bailing out of checkout. Um, this is one we just did for Intuit. Um, and the, what we came up with is to do 10 users live with a screen sharing tool and then 10 users with uh, usertesting.com, which have you guys heard of usertesting.com? Okay. So it's a service where they'll find random people who are on their panel. And for 39 bucks a person, that person will talk into their own computer mic. So we call it self-moderated. Because they're talking, so you get some sort of human feedback from them, but you're not on the phone with them. You know, so they, their experience is a little weird. It's just kind of like you're sitting alone in the dark talking to your computer, being like, okay, I got this, I understood that. But it's kind of, it's kind of cool, and we've been using it more. Um, so we tried to come up with a way to say, okay, if you're about to purchase uh, this product, 
here's a, we use our Ethneo, which is our tool, to intercept people right in the middle of checkout and ask them about the product they were about to purchase. So this is kind of the difference between when you ask somebody to pretend to care about purchasing a product when they're really about to buy it, the criteria by which they make click decisions are totally different. You know, that you have a bunch of things on your mind when you're about to submit your credit card that aren't necessarily on your mind when you're doing sort of make-believe. Um, and this is sort of the setup. Uh, this is what it looks like when we do moderated remote testing where all the clients and stakeholders, we ask them to come in the same room because the physical collaboration on the client team is great. It's just that the participant is somewhere else. Um, so, and a lot of people ask us at this point if you can do prototypes. I know you guys know that it's you can. Pro- probably about sixty percent of our projects involve some kind of prototypes, um, and you know there's tons of tools to do that. Um, I mean, we've done and we've just done a ton of these prototype studies and dinosaur videos. Um, but so let's. So this is the part that I kind of wanted to get to for you guys. So um, the tools, the UX. Uh, tools has been exploding. In this last six months, there's been more UX research tools that have been created than in the preceding, you know, history of mankind. So um, it's really interesting. The way we define a UX tool is that it has to be at least a little bit behavioral, right? So your guys' stuff falls into this category. It's not a survey. You know, surveys have been around forever, and sure, that's a web or an online form of research, but we all know that it's strictly opinions. There's no relation to functional interaction in a survey. It might ask, how do you find this site? You know, did you find this site easy to use? But the people's own characterizations of their experiences are notoriously shitty. So a survey is not really a sort of user experience tool. And web analytics, you know, again, you can get great data. We're huge fans of it. But it's not really a UX tool because it has no human face to those statistics, right? You can get tons of richness, but you don't know the story behind those numbers. So uh, we kind of put these the tools into five categories. There's moderated, which is just any kind of remote research where you're talking to somebody. You know, it could be with screen sharing, could be, um, you know, uh, with like a, t- uh, a tool that, that shows their click behavior, but you're having some kind of contact with them. Self-moderated, like we just talked about. Automated, um, this is you guys. There's, there's two subcategories of automated, but it's anything where you're giving the user a task and then recording their interactions with either a static image or a functional site. Um, that's also tools like, have you guys heard of Loop 11? So, okay, so it's like live site. Um, And then there's this whole category of fancy analytics, like Crazy Egg, that have gotten a ton of press in the UX sort of world about being rad. And they just do different visualizations of web analytics. There's no task involved, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then there's longitudinal studies. There's diary studies. So there's only one tool that we know of that's good called Revelation, where people over long periods of time sort of um, enter in data either from their cell phones or from a website and they say like oh i've been using this new sony product for a week now and i love it and, you know it's been three weeks and they kind of check in so those are sort of longitudinal or for a long time so here's kind of here's some just some of example products um, i'm sure you guys recognize a bunch of these um i would put um in fact i thought i did put um uh what's the new verify. one verify yeah under automated static because you're giving questions and tasks and then asking people to interact with a static image or a set of static images, which is a little bit different from automated live, uh, like Loop 11 uses in Keynote. You know, they spend all their time and resources being able to give a task in a little iframe and then watch people interact with a live site or, or a prototype. Um, so, um, 
another way to think about these is you talk to people, people talk to a machine, you get tasks on a live site, you get tasks on images. Oh, there you guys are, right? So, <laughs> so um, and then just like, you know, fancy pants analytics. Um, another way to think about that is we tend to generate the most raw insight from one-on-one -on -one interaction, which is probably why ethnography became a buzzword in corporate America in the first place. You know, there's, when you talk to people in about their lives and the context of their usage, you generate more surprises uh, than you do as you get more into um, what I sometimes call computers, watching people using computers. So, um, you know, usertesting.com, userlytics, it's great supporting evidence for some of the insight that we generated on the moderated stuff. And then same for the, the, the more you go into the automated tools, um, your guys' stuff and like Loop 11, where it's fantastic for getting a statistically significant set of feedback. Um, but it's also tricky to know exactly what people were thinking. You know, were they really behaving in these exercises as they would on the real site? Maybe, but you're just not sure because you weren't watching them. Um, and then Clicktail, Crazy Egg, Userfly, those are just, you know, put one line of JavaScript on your site and we'll give you heat maps. Um, another way to think about it is, uh, we already said that one, tend to get more opinions as you go down the line in this direction. Um, so, you know, because people are self-reporting in a lot of the tools, they're just saying, well, I think, you know, honestly, that color sucks or whatever. So, you know, you know you, it's not as much of behavioral feedback. Uh, ad agencies tend to love the farther you go down more. Um, and also you see this term. This is where our world of sort of UX and development touches up against ad agencies and branding. And if you type online qualitative research into Google, there's this huge world that's ten times bigger of like online focus groups and like online... Um, panels and things like that, that ad agencies, when they're going to do a campaign, an outdoor campaign or a, even a web campaign or something, they want to get, you know, they want to spend $100,000 interviewing people about the concepts of the ads. But that's, you know, that's where we don't really tend to do that kind of stuff. Um, another way to think about that is that Jared Spool hates it. Um, but we're, we're getting ready to do a project for him. And he said, well, that's not true. I don't actually hate it. And he sent me this long email. And... He said, hate's not the right word. Um, it's just that um, it's like you shouldn't blame DVD players for bad Jim Carrey movies. Uh, it's not the tool's fault. It's just that these tools, in his opinion, encourage sloppy inferences for user experience decisions because they make it so easy to just execute a test. You can just, you know, five-second test or feedback army, you can just send off a test and be done with it, and then you get the feedback, and you can just basically go with whatever people say so you could get you know direct inferences and he, his point is it takes a lot of training to really get to understand how to interpret user behavior and by the time you've done that you might as well just do some sort of moderated uh observation instead of just doing tools um so he's not against the tools themselves he does hate eye tracking though um no, he said he doesn't. So, you know, this, we, we just have some good examples in usability. It's hard to see up at the top, but there, this is a task we had from a recent test that we did for Levi's and Facebook in conjunction. They wanted to know how the like button is working, you know, because it's a recent launch. And the task was, now you've gone to a product page, click on what you would look at or click on. And then this is the heat map of where people would uh, click. And um, so um, what's interesting, obviously, the one, the one interesting thing, the second interesting thing is that the like button, you know, obviously has almost no clicks. Um, and it's funny because um, we didn't put, very deliberately didn't put 
where would you click on what you liked <laughs> about this page? Because that would be a horrible leading task. But um, you know, they they got a big kick out of uh, reading through the comments. The other thing is, uh, it's kind of hard to see, but these notes. When you use usability, you guys probably know, people uh, sort of justify where they click. Um, so you get a bunch of notes. Um, I think this is similar to your guys' tools. And then this is another task that we had, which was imagine the first thing you want to do is make a quiz. Where would you click to do that? And this is an educational software company. But what's funny is if you just look at the page, um, everybody clicked on quizzes pretty much. But it says to insert a quiz, click the Arrange button, which is a sort of a... It kind of throws you for a loop. And, and most people didn't click the arrange button. There, there's like four or five people that clicked there, or maybe six. But the 45 people clicked you know, on the quizzes. So it's one of those things. This is a perfect example of where straight-up usability issue, no insight required, right? Like, duh, that quiz button needs to actually work. Um, there was a bunch of reasons why it couldn't at first, you know, technical constraints. But this is fantastic for just I illustrating that. Um, this is what the task looked like on loop 11. Um, it's got, you know, a uh, Harry Potter task. And then the difference here is that people self-report when they've completed a task or abandoned it. So it's up to them to say, yes, I finished the task, or no, I abandoned it. So the, the statistics you get about their completion rates are sort of dependent on people's own ability to judge themselves. And we've we found that, it, you know, Sometimes people don't necessarily, uh, like if you would watch them, some people would clearly have succeeded and then mark themselves as abandoned, and sometimes vice versa. So not always, but, but that happens. Um, this is our fit. We tend to use GoToMeeting for a lot of our moderate stuff, um, Ethneo for the recruiting. The, the, the reason that we use Ethneo for recruiting, and we, we, we would have been happy to never develop a tool, but there was no way to get live responses. Like if you use Wufu or SurveyMonkey or something like that to execute a survey on your site and you're looking for people to participate in either automated or moderated research, you have to like, all those survey tools, you have to like look at the results. They're built for like, analyzing aggregate data. And all the Ethneo does is just in dynamically dump the people who are filling out your questions into the categories. And you can set up filters. So, you know, um, are you ready to buy this product is a common question that our clients want to use. And we only want people to participate in research that are actually prospective buyers. And then we use the open-ended responses, like what did you come to this site to do today, to get a feel for if people are going to be good participants. Um, you get a lot of insight from somebody typing, um, yeah, you know, I had the last uh, Sony flat screen from the previous model, and I really want to upgrade to the new 3D OLED or whatever, and I'm looking to find that. You know that that person's going to be a killer participant because they're articulate, they have a good task, versus the 10 people that just wrote info. They might not be, like, the right fit. Um, so, and here's your guys' stuff. I've been pointing out in my talks that I really like the emotion uh, uh, scale. Um, and I noticed, too, that there's another... Oh, this is a new one, Plane Frame, that does... Um, con you can upload a potential IA, and it removes the context from the IA, so you can just test the navigation, um, and it'll tell you, like, where people click and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, but this is the one. So I think it's funny when people introduce new jargon, like emotion analytics, to what's basically a Likert scale... You know, similar to your guys' thing being, a, it's a form of a Likert scale, but they're calling it emotion analytics. But really, it's just, you know, autom uh, automated feedback on a static image. I mean, it's the same category of research. Um, 
uh, with with a lot big frilly graphic. Um, so um, just talking about recruiting for a second, you know. So let's say the boss wants to know how to find people. Um, there's um, there's this kind of gradient of realness. And I was at South by uh, this past year, and there was a panel with FreshBooks and Wufu talking about what kind of research they did, if any, in the development of their products. And they spent the whole time at the panel talking about A/B testing. They were all about A/B testing. But um, it came. What, what somebody asked was, "Did you do that for like optimizing your marketing site, or to come up with the core interface of Wufu and FreshBooks?" And they were like, "Actually, all we did for the core interface was grab people in the hallway and like." Guerrilla testing and significant others, and nothing about the core interaction of Wufu and FreshBooks ever had a single thing A/B test. All that they A/B test is like our, you know, email campaigns and our, you know, registrate, get sign up for Wufu. You know, like how much, how how many people can we get to buy per visit? And so, what's interesting to me is there's nothing wrong with that method. We're huge fans of Guerrilla methods. You just get more accuracy the more down the spectrum you go, and sort of the bottom of the spectrum, I'd say, was Craigslist. Um, you know, we do it sometimes. We don't like to talk about it um, at parties, but it's you know, uh, it's a legit way to get participants. Um, and then obviously you can do agencies. Do you guys, for your tools, do most people just enter in emails, or do they put something on their site? On Twitter, maybe. You oh, okay. The URL, put it to Twitter. They tweet it out. IM. Okay. You can IM, like email something out. You but can get a URL. Much just give them a link. And then they, who knows what they do with it? Okay. Got it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that's uh, pretty legit. Um, obviously, Wufu is great for any kind of complicated form. Um, um, so, let's see here. Oh, yeah, so we used to think that any kind of existing customer panel was really, really bad. But I've been changing that recently to only sort of bad. Because, you know, the, the idea was that you would only have people that were, like, professional survey takers and that those people are really just getting paid to give you an opinion, and they're just going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Oh, yeah, this is great. I would totally use this in my job. You know, and, like, that kind of feedback makes me want to shoot myself because it's just – you could tell they're just giving you – they call it the Hawthorne effect, you know, giving the tester what they want to hear. And But I've sort of changed my mind because user testing's panel includes a rating system. So every time you do a user for 30 bucks or whatever it is, you get to say, did they seem like they bullshitted? And that's a really interesting scale because you end up getting people who have pretty authentic way of, of pretending to get involved in your task, basically. You know, so we did this is kind of sort of some meta stuff here, but we used user testing for SurveyMonkey, so, who's a client of ours. So we did user testing ten users about SurveyMonkey's new product, and we just asked people pretend to come up with a survey that you could use for your job, or we had some academic people or at school, and they really did. You know what I mean? Like, I, if I sat down and thought about it, I could probably come up with a survey that, that I do need to run. And they did take the time to do that, and that made all the difference. So even though they were panelists, they took the time to, like, sit and be like, okay, like, what are my projects this year? So, you know, I don't know. And one guy was a developer, and he was really curious, like, what – if he could uh, convince 10 of his friends to take the quick survey, he was – curious about things about their development environment, how they set up their stations and their, I forget what language he was in, but he, you could tell as he was creating the survey, he was like, oh yeah, and actually, I keep meaning to ask people, like, how do they deal with this one setup task that I hate for Visual Basic or something? And you could hear him care, you know, and that made a big difference in, in so he was technically a panelist, so he didn't, um, right, we talked about that already. 
Um, we do a lot of live recruiting with FMEO, but again, this is on the moderated side. I have a feeling you guys are more interested in the sort of tool side, but if you ever do any moderated testing, um, you need about 10,000 uniques per day to be able to nab people, pull them out of thin air, and then talk to them on the phone because only about 200 people out of 10,000 will fill out a screener. It's like a 1.6% response rate. And then only 10 of those are going to be people you want to talk to. You know, they're going to be interested in buying or you know, fit the study criteria. And then of them, when you call 10 people on the phone and say, hey, you filled out a screener on Zurb.com. We're doing a study on our site. Will you join a go-to meeting and share your screen? Four of those people are going to be like, hell no. Because that's crazy. Uh, they're like, I don't know who you are. I just filled out a form on your site. I'm not ready to like share my screen with you. But 60% of people will because they're nice and maybe you're offering them a gift certificate. Um, and so that's, that's how that works. We set up this handy-dandy little short URL. We use bolt.ps. That's just super, super easy to read over the phone. So if you are doing any kind of moderate testing, it's so much easier not to have to read somebody a nine-digit you know, WebEx meeting or something stupid like that to get them going. Um, and then we do a lot of click-wrap consent agreements. So they're sort of minorly um, you know, legally binding, but they're, they're, they're close. Um, we tend to use Amazon uh, gift certificates to pay incentives. The only reason we use Amazon is because they only require an email address to fulfill. So if you're trying to pay somebody, and they're, you know, not everybody has PayPal out there in the world, so it's nice to just say, what's your email? Um, here's your gift certificate. Um, a lot of crap goes wrong on the moderated side. Um, you know, people are sort of distrustful a little bit. But usually after you are talking to them and up and running, they, they kind of let go um, and, and are down. Um, there's a bunch of advanced techniques we could talk about. Um, it's a, I see it's about 12.55. I know we want to have time for questions. Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, I'll just, as I'm flashing through these advanced techniques, if you guys have questions, start shouting them out. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, all that stuff from that video game example, like all, that was all meant to be like if you if bandwidth is an issue, if screen, um, you know, if the movements on screen, Just the tech stuff. so yeah, tech stuff, and then also who's the user audience? Like kids, remotes, typically bad. Um, anything that involves like sensitive, real sensitive data, like the security stuff. You know, banks pretty much never do remote stuff. They're like, we can't. Um, um, and, there, I mean, sometimes, like, we did a big study for Wikipedia, and they were dying to get people's full-on facial expressions. So they wanted that face-to-face, -face, which is cool. You know, so we did a ton of in-person testing, and they loved it. And, you know, I think that's a legit reason to, do, to, to not do remote if you want to see people's faces. What percentage of your, uh, your clients actually act on the research you produce? I would say at least 1%. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe bordering on two this year, pushing two percent. No, I mean, yeah, it's so funny. It, it, not a ton. Yeah, sad but true. I was gonna say, how do you moderate? Like you were showing at the end when you had them all watching. I think it was the interrupted flow. And yeah. Like sitting around, like how do you run and conduct that? The one to many. This yeah. one, the multi-threading. Uh, no, it was oh. the one where you, hit, you had the room when you pan across to, and everybody from the company. Was oh there, yeah, yeah. Watching people what go through the purchase. Right. How do you actually, because you're moderating the client. Right. 
totally. How do you actually run that so that you, because are people just starting to shout stuff out? Yeah. One person run with, usually that's what I'm one person might run with an opinion or something. Totally. That's a super good question. I mean, and that's something that took us years to like get mm-hmm. that honed down. Mm-hmm. But it takes two people. So you have to have a lead moderator and a support person there. Um, we put everybody into a campfire room. So we encourage people, even though we're in the same room, they can talk. Oh, okay. But we ask if they have any like real issues to type them in the chat. Um, and then the support person sort of filters that out for the moderator. Um, the, the other thing is the moderator, a bunch of times during the interview, will say to the participant, hey, Frank, can you hold on one second while I adjust something on my end? They'll put the participant on mute, and then everybody opens it up for a discussion. Like, what do we just okay. see here? You know, an engineer will be like, listen, I know it's not part of the study, but can we have them go check this one thing? We want to make sure it's working. And we say, sure. You know, or somebody else will say, um, you know, can you explain what you thought, what you thought you saw there, that kind of stuff. Okay. And we do, we have a workshop too where we teach that specifically called yeah. Escape the Lab. And it's, and I mean, it takes some practice. It can be, it, shit can get crazy pretty fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. You were talking about one time you were doing a study in the car? Yeah, for Volkswagen. That's a good question. So that's this portable research one. Um, so all we did was they wanted to study people's interactions with the cockpit interface and their own personal devices. So we had the moderator in the back seat with a laptop, an external webcam, and just a Sprint mobile broadband card. And they were streaming the video from the car live to the designers in Santa Monica and the engineers in Germany. And the, all those people were IMing with the moderator. Then there was also, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, that was all the support person. The lead moderator was sitting in the front seat talking to the driver. Or, I mean, not all the time, just watching with, like, a pen and paper. Just very unintrusive. The support person was in the back seat doing all the technological craziness. And that was their only job, was to record and IM back and forth with people. If something came up that was really important, they would say to the moderator, can you ask what they just did there? You know, Hans wants to know... Like, <laughs> why, you know, why did they stop the car and, and look up that device or, you know, whatever it was. And the internet was okay? The internet was okay. You know, we set the expectation that, like, hey, look, you know, it's cell phone data connection. It's probably going to drop. And it did. And they would rejoin. We just, we, we, we used um, Ustream. So we just had a page and, it you know, the stream would stop and start sometimes. But everybody understood that nobody minded. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, that one, that was so much fun. I guess it was kind of strange. I feel like there's been some other strange ones. I can't think of any right now. I feel like the, some of the video game studies we've done have been weird. People just come in. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, we've had people come really drunk and stoned to video game testing. Awesome. And, you know... It was kind of awesome, <laughs> and the, you know, and we have to say to the client, like, you know, what's your what's your preference here? We could ask them to leave easily, and nobody will know. And they were like, No, fuck it, this is real life. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> they still gave plenty of good feedback. <laughs> Yeah, totally. This game sucks. <laughs> Never play this. Cool. Well, it's almost one till. Cool. Thanks for coming. All right, my pleasure. Awesome <laughs> sure. <laughs>